Hi, you're with Radio Northern Beaches 88.7, 90.3 and streaming live on rnb.org.au. This is uh, Innovation Talk and I'm your weekly host, Michael Lester, for our uh, uh, long-form uh, discussions with people who know uh, a thing or two about the innovation process and environment and system here in Australia. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the topic of innovation and its relationship to equality. Uh, or inequality, as the case may be. Uh, in this day and age of innovation all around us and disruption and great wealth creation and also social uh, uh, utility created and questions rising about it, um, we also at the same time live uh, are living through a period of increasing uh, inequality in uh, income and wealth. And uh, wages are flat in Australia, people are insecure in the sort of jobs they're, they're getting, and of course they're worried too about job losses to automation and technology. So if we want innovation and all the good things it can bring us that we discuss on this show, um, is it inevitable that it has to be accompanied by growing inequality in our society between the rich and the poor and those who make good money and those who don't and those who have good jobs and who don't. And on the other hand, if we try to improve uh, the equality outcomes, are we somehow going to stifle innovation, growth, productivity and all the good things that we want? I think you'd have to say that Australia is a little... Uh, in two minds about innovation, and uh, perhaps innovation's been a bit of a hard sell here. We had a Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull, who tried to talk up a great enthusiasm uh, when he came to office in innovation, but pretty quickly he had to drop that platform because he found he couldn't sell it to the people here. You know, what's that got to do with it? Uh, our business culture seems to be rather risk-averse towards innovation, uh, and this is despite the fact that we have world-class research. Our conversion to innovation is not great, and also people perhaps are a bit worried about what this innovation process means for their job security, losses of, loss of jobs and disruption, uh, and perhaps all they see when they see innovation is rich entrepreneurs uh, and maybe some scientists getting paid to do some work, but what does it mean for them? So, is there a better way to balance all this innovation and equality? And uh, can we have our cake and eat it too? Well, to help us discuss this, I'm delighted to have with us today Andrew Lee. Hello, Andrew. How are you? G'day, Michael. Great to be with you. Now, Andrew is, uh, is uh, um, a member of parliament in Canberra. And in the context particularly today, he is the co-author of a wonderful new book called Innovation Plus Equality, How to Create a Future That is More Star Trek than Terminator. Now, Andrew's a PhD in economics and a former professor at the NU before his political life, so he's uh, got some pretty strong analytical as well as practical political insights into the topic, and the book's co-authored with a professor colleague of his, Joshua Gans, from Canada. And so the book basically, uh, readers, uh, listeners, says that there needn't be a choice between growth and fairness, uh, and that uh, we can have a, a brighter look to the future, a more cheerful look perhaps than we get. And I think your title, uh, subtitle, Andrew, uh, Technotopia, a, a Star Trek rather than a dark dystopia Terminator, uh, maybe says that we can have our cake and eat it too. So, mm. Andrew, um, what motivated you, I mean, uh, to write a book on this topic at this time? Well, Joshua is an innovation expert, and I've been long interested in inequality, and both of us had a curiosity about one another's fields. 
Uh, we saw a lot of uh, talk in the uh, inequality literature about the way in which robots might rob jobs and put uh, low-skilled workers out of work. Uh, and uh, in the innovation area, uh, we got a sense that people weren't engaging sufficiently with the distributional impacts of, of inequality. And indeed, uh, some arguing that inequality was just the price of progress. Now, but Joshua and I think that there is a much more optimistic picture that can be painted. Uh, you know, Michael, you look back to the beginning of the 20th century uh, and the United States, before the uh, mass invention of the automobile, had 15 million horses. A uh, hundred years later, the number of horses has gone down to 3 million. Uh, so horses lost their jobs and uh, we don't have as, as many horses around, uh, but the un unemployment rate uh, is pretty similar across that, uh, that century. So the, the key is to be able to have systems in place that allow workers to reskill uh, and indeed to have the bedrock of education uh, that puts them in, uh, in a good spot for lifelong learning. Right. Uh, look, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship is often seen to be at the heart of the innovation process. Um, but a lot of the evidence suggests, doesn't it, uh, that entrepreneurs are a particularly small subset of our society uh, and people uh, and that they're the ones who seem to benefit from <laughs> their endeavours uh, through wealth and jobs uh, and, uh, and their innovations, while really other people basically can't be included in this process, can't, can't participate directly in the creation of wealth through entrepreneurship and innovation. What, 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 what's the story there uh, about the inequality, if you like, in, in, in access to and ability to contribute uh, in an inclusive way to innovation in, in our society? Well, two things in your very important question there. Uh, one is certainly that uh, most of those who end up as billionaires didn't, didn't arrive in the billionaire class as a result of having invented a new product or service. Uh, so if your way of boosting innovation is to cut the top marginal tax rate down to zero, uh, then you're going to uh, gut the public funds which allow us to have great science programs for young kids while doing relatively little to boost innovation. Uh, the other part of it is that when we look at who innovates, uh, innovators are disproportionately drawn from uh, higher socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, uh, people whose families uh, had the, uh, the cash to get going. The bank of mum and dad often funds uh, new entrepreneurs. And the consequence of that is that society misses out on a whole lot of potential Marie Curies and Albert Einsteins, uh, innovators who might have been a success if they'd had the right circumstances. So society can be more innovative and more equal uh, if we put uh, more energy into finding uh, those uh, entrepreneurs from at-risk communities. Yes, well, uh, I think there's a well-known position uh, from uh, the uh, American economist uh, Daron Asimoglu who, who argues that uh, societies with inclusive institutions that allow all, all members of their society to participate and cr contribute, including in this case to innovation, are likely to grow much uh, faster uh, and more successfully and sustainably than those that uh, lock people out. Absolutely. And we point out in the book that uh, one of the examples of this is the 51% of the population that's women. Uh, sexual harassment uh, is appalling, uh, not only from an equity standpoint, but also from a productivity standpoint. A society that allows sexual harassment to flourish in the workplace is a society that's going to lose much of the productive potential of, uh, of, of women who will then drop, drop out of uh, those, uh, those jobs. So yeah. we've all got an interest in cracking down on sexual harassment. 
indeed, uh, and other forms of discrimination in terms of access. Uh, and of course, some some people, as you say, don't have access to the social networks and the finance networks and and the knowledge they need. We do see uh, an attempt uh, in Australia and other countries uh, by governments and others, and working with universities uh, and even the corporate sector to uh, foster startups in uh, things called incubators and things like this. And in fact, quite a bit of public money is put into these things. Is this any sort of a path towards a more inclusive uh, system of innovation uh, along the lines you're talking or not? Certainly can be, uh, so long as they're broad and inclusive. Uh, I love the way in which the University of Technology Sydney has an aspiration to have half of all its undergrads uh, go through a startup experience as part of their studies. Uh, it is also great potential through uh, uh, so-called MOOCs, massive on, on, online uh, classes, uh, which are reducing the cost of edu- education, uh, allowing people to do what they call nano degrees uh, in, say, becoming a, a self-driving car engineer or a data, a data analyst, uh, learning uh, software programs such as C or uh, JavaScript, uh, and uh, learning languages as well. Uh, so that if we can reduce the cost of education uh, and increase the access to innovative uh, uh, mentors, then we can do a lot to make society more innovative and more equal. Uh, one of the uh, more important features of the incentives for innovation in a system is the protection of intellectual property through patents, trademarks, copyrights mm. that, that extend to creators and innovators uh, a certain monopoly rights uh, over their creations for a period uh, supposedly to provide an incentive and yet presumably to the extent that it limits uh, the free access of others uh, to intellectual property it can in, in inhibit the process of innovation and its accessibility uh, and in the digital age we hear a lot more about so-called open systems how important is uh, the system of intellectual property Uh, rights that we have in a very strong legal form Uh, and is it something that's uh, in any way uh, contributing to the inequalities in the system and that uh, needs some reforms or not? Intellectual property is fundamental to encouraging innovation. Uh, One of the stories we tell in our book Innovation and and Equality uh, is that of forceps. Uh, invented in the late 14th, early 15th century in a time where intellectual property wasn't available and then kept secret uh, for the next couple of centuries uh, by Peter Chamberlain and his descendants. So that meant that you had thousands, uh, maybe tens of thousands, of mothers and babies dying uh, who might have been able to live if they'd had access to forceps. Uh, what a patent does is it provides a monopoly right to the inventor for 20 years, uh, allows them to uh, to profit off their invention in exchange for putting it in the public domain. Uh, so uh, the invention of, of patents uh, saves, saves lives, improves innovation. Uh, but it can go too far. So at the moment, uh, copyright protection la- is, lasts for 70 years past the death of the author. Uh, and we give the example of Beyonce's song, Bootylicious. Uh, if Beyonce lives to age 90, Bootylicious will be in copyright, copyright protection until the year 2141, uh, which in our view is uh, longer than you really need in order to create the incentive for uh, songwriters to make great songs. There does seem to be, in the digital age at least, uh, the emergence of a a winner-takes-all type uh, scenario um, 
in uh, some of the new technologies that we're seeing, almost suggesting that these are almost natural monopolies. Um, uh, what's the story on uh, the winner-takes-all uh, ethos uh, and business culture that we tend to see a lot of uh, in, 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 current, in the current circumstances? You'll naturally see a lot of it uh, in industries in which people are able to switch very very swiftly. Uh, so it's, uh, it's hard to move your mortgage from one bank to another, uh, but it's not hard to move your search engine. Uh, it's not hard to, uh, uh, to, to, to use different online platforms uh, to switch between Uber and Lyft, for example. Uh, and so in these areas where we have fairly straightforward switching, digital monopolies are able to emerge uh, much faster than they were in, uh, in prior decades. Now, that creates a, a challenge for regulators, particularly as some of these uh, platforms uh, are also uh, not only spruiking their own services, but acting as a, as, as a uh, uh, place in which others can sell. So you think about Amazon's marketplace, uh, which, uh, which is not only a place they sell their own goods, but a place where third-party sellers will come in. Uh, we're still grappling with, uh, with how to make sure that we properly regulate that and so consumers get the full benefits of, uh, of the, the efficiency of the system uh, but uh, potential new innovators aren't crowded out. And I think that's going to be a, a vital role. We argue in innovation and equality uh, that it's important to uh, uh, allow interconnection of social networks, for example, uh, and that there should be, in the way in which we had with, uh, with telephone, uh, telephone networks, greater interoperability between social networks uh, to, to, to allow new networks to emerge. So if I hear you correctly, uh, the problems with some of these large uh, networks and platforms that are so dominant in our economy and business structures these days is not perhaps so much a problem of intellectual property uh, as a problem of what? A problem of uh, the trade practices as such of these businesses and uh, their limiting of competition. And as you say, presumably the avenue for tackling that is through competition policy. Uh, there's certainly more to be done on uh, competition policy. Uh, I wouldn't rule out uh, action on the uh, the intellectual property space. Uh, we argue for uh, the United States to have two-part patents, uh, one with, with a shorter period of exclusivity and a lower bar for, uh, for innovativeness, uh, another one with a longer period of exclusivity but where you have to clear a higher bar. Uh, and we also think that it would be uh, a mistake to uh, extend uh, copyright protection any further than it is at the moment. Uh, but there's, there's other, other reforms and making sure that uh, you can port your identity between social networks is, uh, is, is one of those. Uh, we can also do, uh, do a lot to think about how we encourage innovation. Uh, economists are fond of prize-based systems of encouraging innovation because it draws interesting people out of the woodwork uh, who might not have otherwise passed muster for a standard grant process, which is based on your CV and your track record. And if we could return uh, to the question of so-called open systems, which uh, place no reliance at all, really, do they, on any concept of intellectual property protection uh, and have the idea of shared commons that lead us to things like, uh, well, Wikipedia, I guess, and uh, a number of other major examples. Um, what's driving, I mean, open systems, are they particular to the digital economy, do you, do you think, uh, and, and a particularly appropriate model? Uh, how far can they take us in opening up and democratising and equalising opportunity and access to these new technologies? 
Look, I think they're incredibly important. Uh, the world's number one encyclopedia is an open system. Uh, most of the world's mobile phones run on uh, an open platform. Uh, this uh, allows better scrutiny of the uh, the underlying code uh, and also ensures that we're getting contributions from great minds all around the place. Um, so we're excited by the potential of open systems uh, as a way of democratising information uh, and also boosting the, the extent of innovation. I'm talking on Innovation Talk Radio Northern Beaches uh, with uh, Andrew Lee, the co-author of a, a book, Innovation Plus Equality, How to Create a Future That is More Star Trek Than Terminator. And uh, Andrew, there is a lot of concern also generated by the innovation process about negative impacts, including, I guess, uh, equality and inequality, uh, but a range of social and other concerns uh, that raise uh, questions about the need f for regulation in the public good and to the public benefit. Uh, yet in your book, you seem to be promoting uh, an approach called, um, what is it? What? Uh, sorry, I've just lost the phrase. That it is permissionless, isn't it? Permissionless innovation. Yes, yes. I wonder if you could uh, uh, share with our listeners what this approach to the regulation of new technology offers and how it might uh, contribute to less... Uh, less uh, inequality uh, as a result of innovation? So permissionless innovation is uh, the idea that uh, it's easier to uh, ask for forgiveness than to get permission. Uh, it comes out of uh, US Rear Admiral Grace Hopper uh, and uh, a terrific book by Adam Thierer at George Mason University. Uh, this is the notion that we get more innovation if we take uh, an approach that encourages uh, new innovators to have a kind of regulatory sandpit to play in, uh, that innovation should be judged innocent until proven guilty uh, and that we recognise the benefits of experimentation. Uh, and that then that means that you're able to get uh, uh, innovators not being stymied by, uh, by excessive regulation but also that you're able to maintain good uh, health and environmental and safety regulations uh, around the innovations as they grow in size. This does sound on the surface uh, a little like a, uh, a conventional uh, market mechanism focused uh, deregulatory cutting red tape approach and on the one hand I wonder how much evidence there is uh, that in fact uh, the systems that we even have now are actually inhibiting innovation and on the other uh, there are different uh, philosophical and ethical ways to approach this question for example the one percent doctrine the idea that you know if there's only a small chance that there might be a big negative impact uh, in the uncertain future of innovation then you should probably do something about trying to mitigate that now um, so there are different approaches here, aren't they? And is this permissionless uh, innovation just a recipe for a free-for-all on innovation and a lack of concern for social impact? It's a fascinating question. I mean, I'm certainly uh, concerned about uh, uh, extreme catastrophic risk and wouldn't advocate permissionless innovation uh, in an area such as, such as uh, uh, gene manipulation or uh, uh, nuclear experimentation. Uh, but you, it, it can be useful in areas uh, which are stymied by a large player uh, where there's a gatekeeper with market power. Uh, they can have an interest in 
bringing up regulation to a level that uh, is not ideal for the community, but is ideal for that large monopolist. So we always need to uh, to, to watch watch out for this. Uh, the way in which uh, the, requ- the requirement to ask permission uh, can entrench the power of the insiders uh, and prevent someone who's uh, grown up and uh, on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, uh, from making a difference. Yeah, this is a fascinating topic, I think, and uh, you know, your book does seem to uh, to to want to make a lot of this uh, point and approach, I guess. Uh, but uh, it comes from uh, another uh, uh, academic author, I believe. I mean, it's not something that, uh, that you've uh, developed, but uh, it does seem like a, a very provocative idea. I mean, for example, let's take the case of um, uh, financial innovation. Um, we had uh, the happenings of the GFC. Uh, through, some said, uh, a lack of regulation, uh, an ability uh, to innovate uh, with all these uh, products uh, that were around, including things like CDOs, collateralised debt obligations, uh, and securitised bad home mortgage loans that led to almost a systemic collapse. And this was in the absence of any regulation and presumably a, a permissionless innovation environment, was it? I'm not sure you think of that as permissionless innovation, but right. certainly it's an, an area an area where uh, uh, innovators were uh, able to go to go too far within some of those large firms. Uh, what I'm thinking of, though, in the area of uh, financial innovation, is the ability of a small firm to experiment with uh, extending point of sale credit, for example, uh, and to operate within a, a regulatory sandbox environment. Uh, as it develops those those sorts of technologies. So this might be more like what could be called a, a learning by doing or an experimental approach, which does seem to be a part of the ethos of digital innovation, much more sort of small incremental innovations that can be put out into a marketplace pretty quickly and turned around on the on the basis of market reaction and, and, and data and evidence. And, it, and it's a bit resonant on another theme, I think, that you've written about in public policy innovation, isn't it? Uh, about uh, uh, random control trials and experiments uh, before policy innovations are scaled up. Absolutely. I was a uh, fan of randomisation even before it won the Nobel Prize, and I think uh, experimentation is one of the great ways in which we're able to produce better outcomes for, as a society. We also need to recognise that innovation isn't always about uh, uh, heroic and Rand-style entrepreneurs working uh, outside the system. A huge amount of innovation, as uh, Mariana Mazzucato has pointed out, comes from within government. Uh, so you think about the uh, uh, history of uh, everything from freeze-dried food to racing swimsuits, uh, jet engines, super, super glue, memory foam, uh, all of those are government innovations. And indeed, if you look at your smartphone, you see a device where voice recognition, global positioning systems, multi-touch screens, uh, the internet, cellular, tech, cellular technology, uh, all came out of government innovation. Uh, and that's an important part of recognising how we can boost innovation. Yes, and looking historically, um, I'm prompted to recall somewhere uh, that you've written there about um, the era only not so long ago for some of us, the 50s and 60s, when it seemed like uh, the developed economies anyway had growth and equality hand in hand uh, Mm. because of a range of uh, factors that you've mentioned uh, in, in different domains, transport technologies, household technologies, space innovation. So my question is, I guess, what was different? about that period with, of growth and equality uh, and, 
and a lot of innovation going on, as you say. Uh, and what happened subsequently, 1780s and through into now? Is it because we're confronting different technologies or do we have different uh, government regulatory and legal environments? Or what's going on here? Why the difference? There's certainly a difference in social institutions. So both Australia and the United States had uh, uh, many more unionised workers in the post-war decades, and that helped ensure that uh, the benefits of growth were, were more broadly shared. Uh, social institutions were more egalitarian. There were norms that kept uh, uh, CEO pay in check. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, distributional uh, policies, both on the spending and taxing side, uh, were more egalitarian in that period uh, than we see at the moment. Uh, and we also had a, a huge wave of innovations coming through. Uh, so the, uh, the, the uh, 20th century saw a whole raft of innovations on everything from transport technology to food, food production, uh, the way in which our households were set up, uh, and that seemed to slow quite markedly from the early 1970s. So the slowing of innovation coincided with a uh, deregulatory agenda, uh, and those, those two factors both acted to give us uh, less equality and less innovation. Which seems almost uh, contradictory or certainly a bit of a, a dichotomy or dilemma because uh, deregulation was supposed to remove all the barriers uh, uh, you know, to innovation and business growth uh, and uh, you seem to be suggesting that the, the fact they brought it in almost... Uh, slow down that rate of innovation. Uh, but moving on from that, uh, and as we move to close here, Andrew, uh, one of your key themes as I read it is that, of course, innovation is very uncertain in the paths it might open up and the options it might present for society. And you call, I think, for an embrace of this uncertainty of innovation, but importantly, in the interests of equality as well as the efficiency of the system, you call for the protection of people from unfavourable outcomes and you talk about a mix of policies uh, that might provide social insurance against these uncertainties for people. What do you mean by that? I'm so glad you've gone to this, Michael, because the, uh, the notion of uncertainty and social insurance really is uh, at the heart of how we think about responding to technological change. Uh, we don't have a perfect crystal ball, and so we need to uh, make sure that people have the kinds of social, social supports uh, that will allow them to have good careers regardless of how technology uh, shapes their workplace. Um, so for, we, we recommend in the United States uh, encouraging uh, more online education, uh, limiting occupational licensing, uh, reforming benefits, taxes and employment law to remove biases against working women uh, and uh, raising one of the key anti-poverty programs in the US, uh, the Earned Income Tax Credit. Uh, we also think you can uh, boost the quality of vocational training uh, and the, the quality of schooling as well. Uh, we need to, uh, to make education work more effectively and to be that broad platform from which wor workers can continue to adapt across a, a successful career in an inevitably changing world. Yes, uh, well, that's uh, certainly a considerable challenge uh, uh, in this day and age of uh, loss of public trust in governments, I guess, loss of public trust in institutions uh, generally, and the great divisiveness that's opened up uh, in our society, uh, and even worse in the UK and the US, uh, politically, uh, the divides are so starkly drawn that they almost tend to immobilise the ability of government to effect any really uh, positive change one way or the other. Um, so I'm just wondering what the pathway to reform uh, of this sort of agenda that you're setting, how, how do you feel about that pathway at this time in Australia? 
Mainstream centrist parties have uh, suffered significant losses, uh, not just in Australia but around the world over the course of the last few decades. And part of the challenge of rebuilding that is to have the right answers for a population that's feeling uh, hit by a hollowing out of the middle class uh, and by the rapid pace of technological change, um, whether that's smartphones or uh, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, a whole range of uh, changes in society, uh, people feel as though they're uh, trying to struggle at the eye of a cyclone uh, and they, they need good, strong policies being put forward uh, that they can see will make a difference to their lives. Uh, so our aim with Innovation Plus Equality uh, is to write a book that sets out some of those policies uh, which will make a tangible difference to improving the lives of middle classes uh, across, across the advanced world. Well, that's great, Andrew. Thank you for joining us here on uh, Radio Northern Beaches Innovation Talk. I'm Michael Lester signing off for another week. Andrew, that's a, a very uh, happy ending in a sense, uh, and your, bo your book itself, I think, uh, uh, tries to steer us towards uh, some smart policy solutions uh, that can give us uh, both our cake and eat it too on innovation and its benefits, uh, but also equality uh, in, our, in our society. And I love this uh, phrase that you've got, more like a, a tech utopia of Star Trek than <laughs> a dark dystopia of Terminator. <laughs> so Absolutely. thank you. Thank you very much thank for joining again, us. Michael. Thank you. Thank Bye. You.